Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. On the week of love, on the weekend of love, and during this, this topic, Decisions of the Daring, uh, I've, uh, you know, prepared a talk to talk about sex, right? So that's just, there's no way about it. We're going to talk about that. And, um, you know, through uh, the week, as people had heard, I'd had people message me or, or talk to me, friends and people I know who said, do we really, like, you know, need, like, need to, is it necessary that we need to do that? And my answer was generally, you know what? No one else has a problem talking about it. In fact, every other pillar of society is talking about it a lot, like oversharing about it. And if a lot of the the mess that the church and the world is in in this area, I you could almost attribute to the silence of Christians, the silence of the church, um, or, or, or bad responses of the church in many cases as well about this. So I have no problem, um, you know, and we as a church have no problem speaking into this and being vocal about something that is on the lips and screens and in the ears of every person in our society today that we need to discuss it. We can't wait for this train wreck to happen to happen to our families a bit, we need to be on the forefront with it. And then people often, the follow-up question is like, okay, yeah, but won't that be awkward? Um, no, no, it's fine. I'm not awkward. If you're not awkward, I'm not awkward, right? Like we can have some fun, like talking about this. I mean, it's anything but boring, right? Like there's definitely 10, 20 more boring things that we could talk about on a Sunday morning. I'm talking Christian things as well, right, that we could talk about um, than this. So I think it's at least, at least interesting. If you were to take, I suppose, like the... Uh, the dominant cultural perspective on on sex, I suppose you could define it. And I mean the dominant cultural version, not the not the church version of the Bible. Like, what is what are people believing at large in this area? You would say it is recreational play between two consenting adults. It's a physical activity, kind of likened to hunger or a physical biological urge. And then, like, you know, if you, if you think with the introduction and widespread nature of contraception, it's kind of separated even from the idea of procreation as well, um, and really boils down to something where you could say, well, what's the big deal? There are no restrictions and no rules about this other than simply not letting anyone get hurt. I mean, that's not that everyone lives by that rule, like in reality, but at least as culturally at large, we accept this idea that it is, it's a physical recreation as long as there's no harm done, there's no need for any rules or boundaries around that. And ironically, it is both a, a topic where it's a, what's the big deal? It isn't a big deal, right? And then a world that still makes an enormous deal, and a completely huge deal about how important this is for everyone. And that if you are not fulfilled and exciting and living and uh, exploring this part of your life, that you are somehow subhuman or not experiencing everything that life has to offer, right? This is kind of incredible irony that exists with this um, with this in our society at large. But you've got to think, well, where, where did that come from? Where is this cultural view that pervades us all? Where has it come from? Because if you think about the last hundred or so years, in the West by and large, um, you know, we have experienced, or the West, you know, you could say, has experienced a so-called sexual revolution through the 50s and 60s where a, a, a practice and a, an activity that was previously sort of held as this um, 
you know, uh, you know, religious, sacred kind of um, private idea has sort of been, has broken free from the shackles of religion, as it were, right? It's a free thing that everyone should be able to experience, and um, it shouldn't belong just in the church, shouldn't belong to anything religious, everyone should experience. And this revolution that was supposed to um, provide, uh, you know, liberate, it was supposed to liberate the idea has done anything but that. In fact, what it's done is in divorcing sex from meaning uh, and boundaries and ideas, what it's done is it has freed sex to be co-opted by commercialization and consumerism, right? And, and it has been overtaken now with, with dating apps, like with Tinder, with pornography, with prostitution. It's a tool for marketing and movies and music. The entire media are jumping on board to use and manipulate people with this concept. It's, it's, it's lost its meaning. It's bottomed out with meaning, but it has been co-opted and used um, by a big business to make money, to manipulate people, and in very many cases been destroyed of its actual pleasure and the good parts that you might say exist about it. It's anything but good, anything but sacred. It carries no deep meaning, no greater purpose. It's no big deal, but at the same time, it's also everything. And the church's response, I mean, if you were to say there was a church response to this or the Christian response through all of this time, has almost felt a little bit like a sitting on the side and just throwing rules at it, like a don't touch that, right? That has kind of been the response that for all of this, um, simply either uh, it's dirty, you shouldn't do it, you shouldn't participate, and if you do in this certain context, then it shouldn't even be talked about, right? That has kind of by and large been the church's response. I mean, in modern times, sometimes the church is actually overcompensated by saying, no, yeah, it's awesome, it's everything, and, um, and, and sometimes the response to the church hasn't really been completely adequate or even relevant, because at the core definition, the definition has changed over time. Let me tell you a story. You might have heard this before. In the, uh, I, I've talked about this before, but in the 90s, Pepsi, the, the drink company, uh, brought out a new product. They were bringing out a new product, uh, and it was called Crystal Pepsi. Now, uh, Crystal Pepsi was like this new kind of light drink, low calorie. It was a light color instead of the dark, you know, oil-looking drink that, you know, Pepsi and Coke actually are. You know, and so it was this new product line that they were bringing out, uh, and the intention was to be like a breakthrough drink on the market from Pepsi. Um, Coke got word of this. Okay, like our our competitor is bringing out a new drink. So what Coke does is they bring out... Um, the competitor product um, called Coca-Cola Clear. However, the purpose of Coca-Cola Clear was never to compete with Crystal Pepsi. It was actually a what so-called kamikaze product. In fact, Coca-Cola Clear, even think about it, it doesn't even sound good, Coca-Cola Clear. It just sounds like water, right? It's, it's not even a well-thought-out um, product itself, but it was designed to convince the market that, hey, you might have heard Pepsi bringing out something, we'll show you what it is. This is what it is, it's our version, it's the same thing. Um, and it's not very good, is it, right? Like Because the product itself was designed to fail, but it was designed to fail and take down Crystal Pepsi with it. And it was 
successful. Within a year, both drinks were off the market and completely destroyed Pepsi's attempt to take it out because everyone who would have attempted to, say, depart from Coke and try this out saw it, tried the alternative that I don't like that, and then there was no point in even trying the actual thing anyway. It's a, it was a kamikaze or a takedown product. I think that that analogy could lend itself very well to what we, um, in the last 50, 100 years, you could say, um, have seen happen with the concept of sex, in that what was intended and created by God has been co-opted by the, the enemy. So, you know, we as Christians do believe that there is a dark force, an evil force, the, the devil, say, whatever you might want to call that, but there is an enemy, a dark force that is trying to take us out, to rob, to kill and destroy from humanity. And one of the greatest achievements that the devil, that the enemy has ever done is taken this concept, put up a cheap, horrible imitation, and have convinced everyone that this is the real thing and that it's terrible, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, it's consumerized, there's no deeper aspect to this. It's full of pain, it's full of abuse, and it could be an element of shame for everyone who touches it. So therefore, you know, you don't even need to try the real thing. This is what it's like and it is not good. So what do we do? What do we do about that? Because... What I I feel has happened so often in and amongst this cultural battle between uh, these competing ideas is that the Christian view and the church's view has often rather um, than redefine, has just been to throw rules. Well, you just don't have the rules right. You just you need to adopt these rules and these practices, and if you do that, then everything will be fine. That is it. When in reality, what we need is a daring redefinition. We need to define and redefine sex so that we understand what God has said about it, what he has created. And perhaps you might, you might be here this morning, you're not a Christian. Well, look, at at least this is something that I think would be interesting to hear the Christian perspective. You might have heard every other one, but hear us out, hear the Christian view on this. It might actually make more sense of the phenomena that you observe than any other definition you've heard. Um, and I, and I, I do want to recognize, lest you think that this morning and what we're about to talk about is purely relevant to people who are in a season of life where this is an activity that, like a, a fruit that they eat, so to speak, um, this is actually extremely relevant. Everything I'm about to say is extremely relevant for every period of life because, uh, you know, being uh, young, being dating, being engaged, being married, being post-married, being, uh, you know, in any part of life, this finds itself expressed differently. But the reality is it is expressed It is a department and an area of our lives, whether we like it or not, for our entire lives, because God has created us with this dimension. He has created us with it. And it is something that we walk with through all of life. It is no no service to pretend it doesn't exist outside of marriage. That would be folly to pretend that outside of like or a Caesar or to pretend that this sexual um, identity that we have is something that we don't have as part of our lived experience through all of our lives. The reality is that it is there and that we must talk about and understand God's wisdom. So I, I believe that what I'm going to talk about now, just for about another 20 minutes or so, could, is going to be very, very relevant to your life, a daring redefinition. Um, so let's start there. So these are the three things I want to cover today. Um, number one, what is sex? Number two, where does it flourish? Number three, how should we 
conduct ourselves. What is sex? Genesis 2 24, right in the beginning, God creates man and woman. They're in the garden. They haven't sinned yet. They are just as intended by God. Uh, and God says in Genesis 2, 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. The Hebrew word is echad, right? You kind of need to spare. I need a, a good drink of um, crystal Pepsi to get the ha, you know, going on. Um, Echad is this Hebrew term, and it's a funny kind of thing that it's the Bible says one flesh. You might almost gloss over it without thinking much of it. You see, the idea of flesh or your body is that everyone has their own. There's not just one. There's a lot. You have a body. Someone else has a body, and they don't. They're separate. You have separate. Everyone has their own body. You have, and, and flesh is anything but one. It's separate. But in this experience that is talked about here between a, 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 the, the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, the Bible describes it as the joining together of flesh, that two become one, right? So let's think about what, like why that could be important. You see, in the Christian faith, we have the uh, belief, you know, by and large, that um, that God exists as a trinity. Uh, what that means is that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that three uh, expressions of the same essence, that God is both one and separate. But what that means is that God, even prior to the beginning of our timeline, in eternity and in infinity, was experiencing complete and perfect intimacy, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were one that they were three, but they were one, experiencing complete intimacy. And that on earth, the closest expression that humanity can have that mimics what the experience of the Trinity is, is between a husband and a wife in sex. It is a divine and sacred experience. And while the cultural, worldly, secular view of this is that it is a biological act purely like, and an act of like hunger or, or any other act like this, the Christian view, the biblical view is much higher. It takes a much greater expression of what it actually is and what God actually created. But not only is it sacred, um, think about the first command God ever gave humanity. God, God's first command what do you do? He said, go, be fruitful and multiply. Like the very first thing, the first thing, think about it, he said, was to multiply. He didn't say, don't touch those, right? That's not for, you know, no, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Go ahead and do this. Um, and beyond that, like you actually see through the scriptures, not only is it commanded, it is celebrated. There is an entire book in the Bible that is like an erotic book, the Song of Songs. Um, so graphic is this book that Jewish boys were not permitted to read it until they were married, until they were about to get married. It was the birds and the bees talk for young Jewish boys. And often women in some groups were never permitted to read it. It was like the, the sex scene of the Bible, I guess you could say, that like, you know, your parents would walk in on you and when it was playing over, you know, whatever, right? Um, it's in the Bible, it's there, it's celebrated, it's given um, priority and place. But let's, um, let's be clear that while it is created by God, while it is endorsed by God, while it is celebrated by God, uh, it is not actually anything to be worshipped. In fact, many people, even Jesus, 
Paul, many heroes of the faith would have never experienced it. And the Bible has, it does not say that you are, if you are not experiencing it, that you are any less of a person. That it, is, that it is even a bad thing not to experience. It is not the be-all and end-all. It is not the pinnacle of human experience. It's not the best thing you'll experience in your life. In fact, the best thing you can experience this side of heaven is to know your Father in heaven, to know that He loves you, He adores you, He is your fulfillment, He is your joy, He is your hope, He is your forgiveness. And that is where we pull our most divine, important experience from. And that is open to everyone. But sex is not that. And that actually flies in the face of a secular definition, which is that if it does feel by and large that if you are not experiencing this, you have a condition called singleness or because you can't experience it, that you are somehow less of a person or don't get to fully be alive or fully experience life. And that is not what the Bible says, that it is important, it is celebrated, it is blessed, but it is not everything, it's not the only thing, it's not the best experience of life. It is just a gift that God has given. So it's important we balance this out. Many people will go through seasons, even within marriage, where it's not something that can you know, take place, um, in fact, everyone, everyone will experience seasons of life and long seasons where it is not an activity that is something that can be partaken of. And it's important that you know, that is that's recognized and that is okay. All right. So the, the joining together, the fusing, the perfect intimacy, a sacred and divine act that is much higher, much more powerful, much more significant, much more spiritual than what the modern secular view is. And therefore, like anything that is powerful, that is important, that is divine, it's true that with it comes from God a set of guidelines for how this can flourish. I... um. A, a razor blade is a very, very powerful tool, right? A razor blade or a knife. I watched Crocodile Dundee was on the TV last night. You see that that scene where he's shaving with the knife or at least pretending to shave with the knife. You know, you see this tool is incredibly powerful, very useful. You could fill it a fish. Apparently, if you're Mick Dundee, you can shave your face. Um, you can protect yourself. You could, get, you could ward off an attacker, I suppose. Uh, I would never do that, but people probably do. Um, and it's, it's a very powerful tool, a knife. But I have a, a four-year-old son. I have a two-year-old son as well. And I would not give them this as powerful as that is and wonderful as that is. Number one, they are too young. They do not have everything it takes right now to handle what is a very, very powerful tool. And secondly, when the time comes when they do be old enough to use it, they need to fill it a fish and, you know, whatever it might be, um, I will sit them down and give them guidelines and teachings on, hey, this is the sharp end. Hey, you do not point this at anyone. Hey, you do not use and, and help them to understand how to use this powerful thing so that, they, number one, they don't hurt themselves, and number two, they don't hurt anyone else. That is the, the basis of something that is incredibly powerful, and this is no exception to that idea that's so powerful, so incredible is it that there are guidelines for how it happens. So where? Where does it flourish? If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. That would align with the teachings of the Christian faith that sex belongs inside the covenant of marriage. That would even mean like keeping virginity until the, the wedding night, right? 
You want to talk about something that is daring, something that is the exact opposite of our entire culture? I would, I would imagine that there is an enormous chunk of society right now, especially young people, who do not even know that is an option, that you could even do that, that someone is alive today that would do that, that would wait until marriage. 50 years ago, 100 years ago, it was at least spoken about as the right thing. Whether people were doing it is another thing, but it was at least culturally accepted as somewhat normative. Today, we have swung so far in the other direction that it is not even perceived as an option anymore. Hence why this actually, this talk is, is, is surfaced in the series, The Decision of the Daring, because the move to actually follow God's commandments with this is daring. Daringness is not always bravery under adversity. Sometimes it is swimming against the cultural tide of the day and doing something that would otherwise, otherwise look foolish. Daringness can often seem like foolishness to those who don't understand. And you might go, well, okay, Brendan, I was kind of with you. Like I was, I was with you when you were sort of talking about how God created it, it's good, blah, blah, it's different than what, so, you know, I was with you, but this is sounding pretty regressive, right? I mean, is this old fact, is this kind of, we're getting to irrelevant zone here where you've actually finally put your finger on why the Christian faith is actually irrelevant to modern society? Well, look, let's just, just for a start, let's, let's not forget how long history is. Um, this is not, we aren't amidst the first sexual revolution that history has ever been through. The early church actually grew and, and thrived in a time that was probably even more debilitating than the time that we live in right now. Like the world has cycled through this before. Cultures have cycled through this before. In fact, the, the views of the early church that a man and a woman would not open their marriage bed up, that they would only have each other and would be pure, was extreme at that time. It was an extreme um, worldview to have because no one would do that. And it actually, that was quite famous that the Christian worldview would be that um, disciplined in that area. Um, but I say that to say that God's teachings, if they are true, and if you are convinced that God is who he says he is, if Jesus has, is who he says he was, God's teachings are eternal, they are infinite, and they're all wise. We don't get to cherry pick teachings for certain times in history, because the reality is at all times in history, something in the Bible will not be culturally appropriate or sensitive to everyone. There's always going to be some level of conflict um, with what is being taught. There was probably a time that the teachings of the Bible were actually more extreme in the other direction, like when society at large was so quiet and so clamped down on the idea of sex. And if you read the book of Song of Songs, you would have been like, whoa, this teaching is extreme. This is like saying that it should be something to be enjoyed when it definitely shouldn't be, right? Like, you know, there was probably a time when the reverse was the problem. But God's teachings are eternal. They're infinite. They are not... Um, they're not true because they're good. They're good because they're true. We don't believe in them just because they're good teachings. Uh, we believe in them because they're true, because they come from God himself. And yes, um, aspects of this do sound like sacrifice. It sounds like the narrow road. It will not always be easy, uh, but it is the path and it is the teachings that God have set up. And let's, you know, let me, let me change over to the other side here and think, well, let's think, you know, if, if you were purely secular. You said, I don't want to hear the teaching. I just want to hear some more like research. The research would actually suggest, and there has been a lot of research around this, that people who experience the highest frequency of sex and fulfillment in that area are actually people in committed monogamous relationships. 
And people who experience the lowest fulfillment are people who are in like who are single with frequent changes of partners. Think about that. What would modern media, Instagram, Netflix, radio, everything tell you? It would tell you it should be the opposite. It would tell you the boring people who are unsatisfied or over it, they're the ones who are married in monogamous relationships, and people who are out there just living the dream, young people just, you know, totally free. They're the ones who are having the best time, but the research is the opposite. Funny, hey, I'm not saying that's a good enough reason to do it, but it's at least interesting to see that this version is not is actually providing many people the most fulfilling best way for this to flourish in their lives, not to clamp down on them. Because you could also think it's kind of stifling. You're like, aren't you taking a beautiful thing and stifling it with rules? Um, as I said, the, the, the belief in the Bible is that the best way to experience such a powerful thing um, that can do a lot of damage is within the covenant and the commitment of marriage. And that you, you may think that overindulgence, that like indulging heavily in something like this would be the best way to enjoy it, when in fact overindulgence rarely leads to the most pleasure. In fact, usually overindulgence actually leads to dysfunction. People become desensitized to joy uh, and pleasure, and it moves to areas of dysfunction when actually discipline, boundaries, and commitment actually much more likely to provide a greater level of joy or pleasure. You might not think that, but it is indeed the case. Where does it flourish? All right, and, and let, me, let me move on because I don't want to get to this point here. If that's what it is, if that's where it flourishes, then for, for us, we, how do we conduct ourselves with all of that? I'd like to suggest that there are three areas that are just worth just, let me just dot, dot, dot and mention each of them relatively briefly for how to um, follow God's wisdom um, in how to live out the best of this in, in your life. And once again, these apply to any period of life, whether you, you know, whether you are dating, married, post-married, whatever it might be, and completely single, this is um, really important. A pure mind. I would say that the battle that happens between your ears is the ground zero for success and failure in this area. That the battle of your mind, of your thoughts, is the most important place to get this right. Everything starts from there. The Bible even says meditate on what is pure, right? That people's lives in this area are destroyed by what happens in here. Okay, um, and you know many people experience like often you know the, the biblical wisdom is that the soul that is full loathes the honeycomb. Now, what does that mean? Um, you know, like if you go through a day and you're eating junk food all day, you have some chocolate here, a little you know chocolate milk there, and you have some um, some bad food. And you get home at the end of the day, and someone has cooked like a nice vegetable salad, something like this for you. Um, you look at it and go, um, "I literally, I'm not hungry. I don't really want that." But if you go through the day with discipline. Like I'm, I'm, I'm purposely eating right. I'm, you know, I'm not going to have that chocolate. And you keep discipline in your life. You get home and there is something sitting on the table that looks kind of healthy. Your hunger is so great that you actually like, I'll eat that. That's great. I'll eat that. And you will actually, you don't eat it like not enjoying. You actually eat it and enjoy it because you've had discipline. You've had a pure body. And then when you approach something that was good for you, it actually was great. Many people can can snack through the day, just that billboard there, that magazine there, this website there, that you know, whatever it would be, and fill their minds and destroy their minds so that when they get to the partner that they love, they're not hungry, they're not, you know, and it can be, lead to huge dysfunction 
because of a lack of discipline. It's applicable completely in single life. You know, in single life, it can be unbearable to have to try and hold back your body at a time when your mind is racing ahead. You've let your mind go to that place, but your body has to hold, and it actually makes it unbearable. It is much more bearable to live in that life. I've been there, I've been a single person for a long time, when your mind is disciplined. And so much of your mind and what you think is actually dictated to by what you consume. I'm going to suggest that the most severe, the most damaging thing you can consume in this area is pornography. Absolutely. It, um, it's, it's clearly, I don't think you could make a case for why it is not, like it's, it's clearly not God's best for your life, for anyone's life. It is clearly damaging. It is clearly sinful. It is clearly not um, something that contributes to godliness. That is absolutely clear. But let's, like, let's go out of that and go back to some kind of secular idea because if you, you might just say, well, I don't believe in God anyway. But like, think about this. Um, let me just name a couple things. I could go all day on this, but I'm just going to go for a minute here. Research from the Planck Institute in Berlin found that porn has the effect of shrinking the pleasure center in the brain and desensitizing a person to joy and pleasure. That's why for many people, they start watching something and they become more degraded in what they consume to try and resensitize, kind of like a drug addiction. You need a higher, higher, higher. And the activities and the thing they engage with uh, be it worse and worse and worse because of where they start and what the effect that porn has. That's research. That's not anecdotal. That's research. Uh, research uh, has found it's a high predictor for divorce. Uh, men who watch porn are less satisfied with their sex lives. Um, research from the University of Cambridge found that the, an, a porn addiction is as destructive as an alcohol or drug addiction, as destructive. So let, us, let alone the effect that it has outside of this, like what it would do to destroy relationships, your sex life, any, what it would do to destroy all of that, it actually has incredibly damaging impact on your job, your relationships, obsessive behavior and distressing behaviors, com- completely driven by that addiction. It's a very, very severe addiction. Um, research from the University of Copenhagen and UCLA found an association with negative thoughts towards women and hostility as well. Like it keeps, it keeps going. But you can make a very clear secular case that the experiment that the world is running right now by, by getting most men and women addicted to porn, watching it, having it as part of their world, there is an experiment being run on our world and it is heartbreaking. And, the, and I think we are just beginning to see the devastation that this is going to cause across the globe. The point is, um, if, you know, you, someone you know around you, like, has looked at this and gone, yeah, it's something I need to, you, you understand, yes, destructive, needs to be out of my life. It can be very difficult to break, uh, especially on your own. I would suggest um, that both to be, you know, to be healed at a heart level, because much of this is driven by the heart and the soul, and to be healed like in an area of like discipline, having discipline in this area, because much of it is about willpower as well. You will need accountability. You will need help, someone to walk with you and journey with you. We as a church are here. We have pastors, connect group leaders. Um, you may need counseling or something like that to help you push through that um, because not only um, is it a destructive behavior, it will have a destructive impact in all of your life. And you can be healed. You can walk through it. You can have it restored completely in this area of your life. You can know what it is to be set free uh, and to have a good, healthy life in this area. It does take some work, but it is completely, completely possible. Um, that's a, having a pure mind, incredibly important. Having a pure body, 
um, you know, once again, um, maintaining that discipline in your body, even in dating relationships until marriage. Often the question is asked, well, what can I do? Uh, I would say that's the wrong question. The real question is, when can you do it? And when you can uh, is on the other side of marriage. The Bible has says in, in that book, it says, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases, as if to say, don't even stir that part of you up if it's not a time when you are made to do it, but if you stir it up in a season when it's not meant to happen, um, it is, is ill-advised that you should wait until um, that right time. And lastly, a pure heart. This area can be incredibly destructive when um, it is seen as an area where I come and take. I take what I want in this area. It should always be an expression of love and servanthood from a pure heart. In marriage, in dating, in every part of life, this should be an expression of love. Cool. All right, let me, I, I kind of talked about a, a lot of stuff now, and that's a really interesting thing, but I'm going to close with a story. Um, it comes from John chapter 8. And uh, in this story, Jesus is, is teaching in the temple, and as he's teaching, a, uh, a group of religious people bring in front of him a woman who has been, they say, caught in the act of adultery. They bring him before and say, hey, this woman has screwed up. She has disobeyed God's commandments. She has not lived up to what God has in this area. What are you going to do about it, Jesus? I would think that most of us just across the spectrum of life can identify with this in some way, that we have all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's mark whether it be in the area that we're talking about this morning, whether it be anywhere else, we've all fallen short. And Jesus' response, he looks and he sees the people who are accusing her and says, hey, all right, with you guys, um, if any of you haven't sinned, if you've never screwed up, all right, you can cast the first stone. They all leave one by one. They're like, okay, like they, they go. And all of it's left. Jesus looks up and he sees just the woman with him. Uh, and he says, so where are your accusers? And they're all gone. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is the message of Jesus, not a message of condemnation, a message of hope, a message of restoration, a message of peace, a message that no matter what has happened in your life up until this point of what you are living through right now, that God has a hope for you. He has healing for you. He has restoration for you. There is a good path ahead for you if you would come to him. It won't involve sending any. It won't be like, oh, I'm going to send you on your way and keep going. It won't be that. But it's not like God is just waiting, angry, waiting to smack you over the head. He's saying, come to me. I'll forgive you. I'll restore you. You can be made right again and you can move and, and see this flourish in your life and maybe even join in the process of seeing other people restored. This is a very individual area and people come from many, many different experiences and backgrounds with this. Some people will have experienced abuse in this area of their life. That's, um, that itself is uh, something to be journeyed through, may require counselling. Uh, to move through that forgiveness and, you know, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, and it may just be something in your life that you and I are on right now. But in this series, The Decisions of the Daring, we've ended every message by saying, um, what are your daring decisions next? 
What do you need to stop doing? What might you need to start doing? And what do you need to keep doing? What are the areas? And it's perfectly good to look, recognize your life and say, hey, like here's some things that I know that I've been doing well and, and to cement that those habits into your life, they're going to carry you forward. But know this, that there is forgiveness in God, there is hope, there is healing, there is peace in Him and you can know restoration in Him in this area. I'd love for us to stand together uh, as I close. I'd love to pray um, for all of us. And perhaps even for you, you might be here today and have never made a decision to even come to God, to know God, to give your life to Him. And I want to just give you that opportunity and say that uh, God is here waiting uh, for you to, to, to forgive you, to be the Lord of your life, but also to be your, your best friend as well. And we as a church would love to journey with you. You know, come and please talk to us even at the next steps desk at the, after the service or whatever that might look like. Um, and if you want help in anything that's been discussed, discussed today, absolutely something that can come up too. But I would just love to close in prayer. I'd love to commit this to God uh, before we go, go on and continue with our, our Sundays. So, Lord, we come to you together as a church this morning, and we just want to recognize the gift that you have given us, that we can walk in a flourishing of what you've given us to experience. God, I thank you that each of us would know what it is to, to be forgiven, to be restored, to be set free for those who are needing to move forward to make different decisions in this area who are seeking renewal, God, may you bring a touch of heaven onto their lives right now, Lord God. May the healing of heaven rest on their heart, on their body in Jesus' name. God, may you restore completely, even that which was taken away, may it be restored many times over, Lord God. May the healing and peace of our Father in heaven rest on every person here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.